So what does it take to make your first million, to scale a business, or to get your first high street listing? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself, and I ask industry leaders and entrepreneurs on my award-winning podcast, Success is in the Mind, exactly that. From high-growth startups to scale-ups and businesses about to exit, I am joined weekly by the founders of businesses like Octopus Energy, Genies, Thursday Dating, Habito, Cano Water and Hera, as well as many more. From sportswear to tech, energy to consumables, hear it here firsthand from those entrepreneurs innovating and disrupting. Join me every Wednesday from 8am. And this is the other key, I think, to, to, to the success that we've had so far. We are not at all risk averse. Our position is is that we will raise what we need to when we need to, and we've always managed that. What we aren't going to do is just to hold back on any opportunity that we can see at that moment. We are not going to say to ourselves, well, we can't afford that opportunity. Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Inquire via CapsuleCover.com and quote Success22. In today's episode of Success is in the Mind, I speak to gaming programmer turned unicorn entrepreneur and CEO of Habu, Martin Bish. From growing up in the East End of London with a passion for gaming to founding and selling multiple businesses, Martin's journey has been one of innovation and adaptation from a very young age. Having had nearly 20 top 10 games in his lifetime, Martin's success and naivety caught up with him when HMRC came knocking on his door some decades ago. I ask if a young Martin from East London ever imagined he'd be running what's tipped to be the next big unicorn of 2022, how do you set up for pre-seed, seed and multiple series funds and how do you go from developer to CEO of over 650 staff in less than three years? Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first, co-founder of Habu, Martin Bish. So Martin, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Oliver. I'm very excited to be here. So let's just sort of dial the clock back slightly because early 80s, early 90s, you were a programmer, a computer game programmer for, for the likes of Sony. How did you get into that world? I got excited by a, I mean, a long time ago, when I was, I guess, 13 or 14 and came across my first computer, which was a ZX Spectrum, which you may or may not have heard of. I haven't, I'll be honest. <laughs> it, was, it was huge. It was, it was the birth of the uh, home computer revolution. And then, and, and, you know, for those of us that that, uh, that were, I guess, sort of nerdy by nature, it was it was genuinely thrilling. It had, it had a rubber keyboard, and just the smell of that rubber keyboard can make me swoon today. <laughs> it was, I mean, so it's like, obviously, the age of a thirteen-year-old boy should have other other obsessions, but but for me, that was probably the most exciting thing that I'd, I'd come across at that moment. So you got into into gaming, into programming when you were when you were thirteen. When did you start working for for Sony then? I can't remember. When I did Sony projects, but I, I published my first game when I was something like sixteen. Um, and that was on the Atari ST, which again you may or may not remember. But I'm gradually moving towards you know kind of a time at which you were released alive. Give me a Nintendo, and I'm there. But Atari, not not quite. Yeah, we'll we'll get to, we'll get to the Nintendo. <laughs> so, so most of it was kind of early home computer stuff. But that was a hit. It was a European number two chart hit, and I was you know 16 years old. I I, I pretty much left school at the age of 15 or so. I, I I grew up in a particularly sort of horrible part of the East End of London. School was largely useless, wasn't doing very much for me. Meanwhile, you know, computers are very exciting. So um, published the game. Um, I mean, I, I had a job just briefly before then for a few months working at Activision playtesting. 
which was a sort of perfect job for a 16-year-old. It was, it was thrilling for a 16-year-old, you know, kind of excited by games. Their office was a flat in Harley Street. I mean, now they're, you know, one of the biggest games companies in the world. But at that point, there was their only, that was their only presence in the UK. So I did that for a few months, um, finished the game with a friend, published it. It did really well. And so just decided that's what I wanted to do and, and did it for a few years for Sony, for um, Virgin, for some some old-fashioned kind of coin-op companies that, you know, you wouldn't know now, but they were kind of big ones then. Um, and did something like 25, 30 games before um, getting out of that. So when you kind of got to, you know, the high, the giddy heights, I suppose, in the gaming the gaming world, the gaming charts, did you make much money from it or was it more hobby? Was it more kind of just, No, no, you know, no, no. I mean, it was, enjoyment. you could make really good money, but I, I, I was an, you know, an idiotic 16-year-old and then 17-year-old and 18-year-old and 19-year-old remaining idiotic throughout that entire phase and so I spent every penny that came in on myself and my friends, none of whom had any money at all. Um, and so ended up in my early 20s with very little to show for it. But why did you, did you sort of drop out of school then? You just didn't enjoy it. What was the reason for not succeeding from an academic point of view? Partly it was the schools. I mean, you know, these were, these were really sort of horrible uh, inner city comprehensives in the east end of London. Success really wasn't part of the plan, I think. <laughs> Just getting out alive was the main thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if only you knew. Um, but, but, you know, computers excited me. It was something I, I was good at and really enjoyed. And, um, and so, I, and it was really clear to me at the time that's what I wanted to do forever. I mean, actually, of course, it turned out that I didn't feel that way forever, but... <laughs> at the time, that seemed pretty clear, and it offered it offered an instant way to make lots of money. I came from a, a you know pretty poor family, so my, my um, father left when I was five. My mother was a dinner lady working a couple of jobs to kind of make life possible for us. Um, to, so it didn't seem like there were too many options, and then and then something that I was quite good at could pay quite well. So I embraced it, and and yeah, I mean it, it paid really really well. And then you kind of came of age and went to UCL, but you studied philosophy, which is totally different to gaming. Why? I'd always been a big reader and I'd got bored doing what I was doing. I mean, I'd had a career for sort of six or seven years by the time I started thinking about university. Oh, wow. Um, and I'd, you know, I'd, as I say, I had nothing to, to show for it. I'd, I'd enjoyed myself, but I'd, I'd not saved anything. I hadn't bought a house. Um, and I just, I thought I need to do something different and philosophy interested me. The, the, the issue was I had no O-levels or A-levels. So, so obviously getting into any kind of university was going to be a challenge. But I wrote to UCL, um, and uh, a fellow called Jonathan Wolfe, who I think is now the head of the philosophy, philosophy department, but then was was a relatively junior member, um, offered me the opportunity of writing some essays and said he would look at them. So uh, I wrote one on Plato's Theatetus and another on Nietzsche, and they gave me um, they gave me a, a place. That's incredible. Were you dyslexic, dyspraxic? Did you have any kind of neurological diversity? Uh, never, never diagnosed. Uh, so. Um, uh, you know, who knows? I, just, I never gave these things a lot of thought and barreled on regardless. Well, and in terms of just barreling on, did that level of almost naivety kind of help with you getting into the world of entrepreneurialism? Because it seems somewhat of an accident that you kind of fell into it. Yeah, it didn't hurt. I mean, I think coming from a family of the most extraordinary ignorance was had, had benefits and challenges. And one of the challenges was um, that, that it never occurred. I mean, no one in my family had ever worked for themselves. And so I was programming computer games. I was very young, very naive. Never occurred to me I should be paying tax, for instance. So <laughs> two years into my university degree, I got I got a, a letter from HMRC asking me what I'd been doing for the last you know seven or eight years, um, and I told them in great detail um, about every 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 chart hit, and I, you know I was hoping they'd be very impressed, and they were. 
um, and and sent me a big bill uh, <laughs> by, by way of proof of quite how impressed they were. Could you afford the bill at the time? No, actually not. No, I'd been in university for two years. I was completely penniless. <laughs> Uh, and then I realized I was probably better off negotiating from elsewhere. And so, I, I mean, I was regularly sort of headhunted for games coding jobs, which I never accepted because I was happily, happily studying philosophy. But I accepted a, a position from a Canadian company, which took me out of the country and placed me in a much better position to negotiate with HMRC. Yeah. Um, and, and so I did. And we, we came to terms. Everything was paid. Um, and I was eventually able via via Paris for a year or two to return to the UK a free man. <laughs> Without being arrested, I Absolutely, like that. Yeah. But it was 2000, the year of 2000, I suppose, that, that you kind of went into starting what you classed as or called making friends online or make friends online. Now, this was four years before Facebook became essentially what it is today, right? A place to go and essentially connect with your friends. Where did you come up with the idea to, to make friends online? I mean, it was a dating site, essentially, with, with sort of friendship aspects. I guess our insight at the time was, so, so, so dating sites then were mostly male. So, you know, you might have 70 or 80% men and, and you know, 20% women. And obviously, that, that's not a great basis for running a dating site. Actually, 10 years later, it was the other way around. It would be 60, 70% women with, with a much smaller portion of men. But we, we thought the way to solve that problem was to try to get rid of some of the stigma associated with online dating, which at that point was seen as something rather embarrassing, rather, rather fringe. Um, and so we thought by, 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 by building site around friendship, we would make it more attractive to women who perhaps didn't want to admit to looking for a date online. And then whilst most men would happily list their interests when they feel that their profile is dating, most women would list their, their, their interests as friendship. And then we built friendship aspects to the site and ended up building quite a significant community of people who even when they met someone would remain on the site um, because that's where their sort of community was. Um, and then we, we, we sold that in um, 2009. I mean, in terms of the idea as a whole, because you said you were kicking off 250 members a month because they were cheating on their partners. Now, how did you figure out that they're cheating on their partners? Usually it would be uh, someone would report them. Uh, and then, you know, we, we, we would look into the emails and uh, it was a very different time when it never occurred to you that, 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 that there should be any sort of privacy within these you know within these sites so if somebody complained then we would simply dig into the email we would discover what was going on and then take an action accordingly of course years later uh, an understanding of, of of the necessity for privacy in these matters meant these things had to be treated somewhat differently but it allowed us to run a very clean site um, we worked very hard to do that whereas other sites were very happy to have people that were doing that sort of thing on their site as long as they generated emails which generated subscriptions they didn't care the kind of site they were running. We, we tried to run a site that ultimately treated people, you know, decently, respectfully, and ensured that other people treated them that way as well, which became a challenge around 2007 and 8. A number of fraudulent dating sites set up camp. Um, I, I won't name any names on this podcast, but uh, TV shows were made about them. Channel 4 did, did an expose of one. BBC did an expose of another. Only one of the companies is still around um, right now. But they would employ groups of people to send out emails to people to try to generate interest and create conversions. And we realized around 2008-9 that if we were going to run an honest business, we were going to struggle in this environment where we were up against people who weren't, which is when we sold the business and, and um, immediately built another data site from scratch smooch.com, which was a freemium dating site. And so it didn't have that problem. We, we weren't seeking conversions. Um, and so it didn't have to compete with these other businesses that were employing these fluffers to sort of, you know, kind of generate interest. And within three years, that was the fifth largest in the country. Uh, and we sold it at the peak of, 
of the online dating industry before before the apps sort of decimated it. You make it all sound quite easy, Martin. I mean, you know, you sat there, you say you made this business, you sold it in 2009, you did another one, it went well, you sold it again before the apps. It can't have been that easy. How did you know what to do at the right time? I mean, I didn't. And I don't. <laughs> Luckily, I mean, our timing, so much of business is about timing. I mean, the, the, the business before Habu, the one I'm currently running, was always a market research business, market research, rapid market research as software as a service. You could get a thousand respondents, nationally representative respondents in the UK, in the US, in the space of an hour. You could literally watch the respondents' replies tick up, and you could do it for about a thousand pounds. You know, whereas if you wanted to buy research elsewhere, you know, you might wait two weeks for the responses, and you might spend ten thousand pounds on, on on that research. So it was really groundbreaking. In many ways, the most groundbreaking business that I've run. But but the timing was was not good. It was too early. The market required educating. The gatekeepers in that space were agencies who liked the high prices and the slow delivery times because they charge an override. So for them, to charge an override on a £10,000 product is more exciting than charging on a £1,000 product. So it took years. I mean, we were the first to enter that space. And five years later, maybe seven or eight other very well-funded businesses entered that space and began to do quite well. But it's often the case that if you're the first to market and you have to educate that market, that unless you've got extremely deep pockets, it can be a challenge to survive that educational process and benefit from it. It was self-funded. I spent you know half a million pounds of my own money building that business. Um, and it, it was challenging to, to, to continue to do that whilst educating the market. So we had some success. Eventually, we sold it to a private equity-backed uh, buy and build. And so it did okay from it. But, but, but it was a challenge primarily because of timing. Whereas in, in 2001, there weren't too many dating sites out there. The timing was perfect. The interest was there. No saturation. By 2009, no saturation. We shifted into freemium. And again, we were the only people in that space making it really easy for us to, to build a business. So, so much of it is about timing. And, and sometimes you think, you know, you think you know the market and, and, and you really don't. You're there at the wrong moments. Too early can be more expensive than too late. And you say that you put half a million quid of your own money in over, over that period. Did you also raise capital from, from other investors or was it very much bootstrapped? No, it was completely bootstrapped. Um, as most of the, the work that I've done has been. The exception, the earlier exception would be um, what was then called Charity Checkout and is now called Enthuse.com. So, so I helped a, a, a brilliant young founder build that business and he raised additional funds then to grow it and has, and has re-raised several times since. But otherwise, you know, m- most of what I did was was more traditionally built businesses. Habu was the first business where I deliberately looked for large amounts of external funding. And it's because the kind of business that it is requires that. It was always going to be a very expensive project. We'll come on to Habu shortly because it is a phenomenal story. But in terms of kind of, you know, having your time again, Martin, I suppose, and looking at starting those those businesses that you bootstrapped, uh, you know, back in the early days, what would you have done differently to, to, to what you did do then? I'd have made few decisions that were intended to increase my own amusement and more, <laughs> more that were about, you know, commercial advantage. Uh, I had lots of fun and... Um, and learned lots, but I think I learned I learned fairly slowly because I was never that interested in the money. Strangely, I just really loved doing what I was doing. I loved it when I was programming computer games, and I loved it when I when I ran these businesses. The early businesses, I employed all my friends, so they were fantastically social and hugely exciting. But but that you know that wasn't necessarily the best thing for the business. But I think the principal thing that I had to overcome was something that is very common to um, technical founders. Most developers think the answer to any problem is a new feature. 
it's not sales, it's not marketing. Those things don't interest them. They're not exciting. They may even, you know, seem a bit grubby compared to the, the you know, the, the more the, the purer uh, sort of product-based uh, um, uh, activities. And so I spent, I think, 15 years coming to terms with the fact that actually it, it wasn't good enough to have a great product. You know, ultimately, if you didn't have great sales and marketing in place, uh, you really weren't going to build the business that you wanted to. Um, and so, I mean, my, my role in, in, in Habu, uh, I appreciate we'll come to that later, but, but in contrast, my, my role in Habu has not been technical at all. So Paul was built the, all of the, the software originally, despite having no experience in doing so. I mean, it's an extraordinary undertaking. My position has been has been commercial from, from day one and, and, and obsessively so. So it, it's almost as if uh, my, my failure over the last 15 years has, has created an incredibly intense focus suddenly and, and, and almost too late on the commercial um, side of the business. Thanks to Habu, it turns out not to be, you know, not, not to be too late. But You've exited businesses, you've grown businesses, you've invested in businesses. Why would you class that as a failure? Um, because they weren't the successes they could have been. Is that not subjective? Is that what you think? Rather than, they surely were successful because, you know, they went from nothing to something. Absolutely. I mean, they were not, they, so perhaps failures is, is not entirely fair. Um, but with, with Habu, I've concentrated on trying to derive every every value I possibly can out of it at every stage of the business. And again, obsessing about the commercial aspects and leaving the technical to other people. In the earlier businesses, there, there were unquestionably missed opportunities, you know, because my attention was elsewhere, or, or businesses that were not sufficiently exploited because another shiny business idea would attract me. <laughs> yes. And I was more interested in being amused than I was in making money. So I'd, you know, I'd then abandon one in favor of another or neglect one in favor of another. So um, it, it, they weren't failures, but but they, they they were not the successes that they might have been had I been more focused. Or in the case of um, Yusa, of my my uh, uh, most immediately previous business, the, the market research business, um, being more focused on the sales aspect, I think we you know we would have done better earlier. Whereas for me, what was exciting was was the product. This. This product that would allow you to reach out to thousands of people, the, the empowering nature of that. I mean, you, you could literally w- watch the, 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 the people responding within seconds of launching the survey. It was an extraordinary thing. And that was thrilling. And being able to build out that power was much more exciting to me than being able to sell it. But in terms of going from sort of coding and developing into becoming an MD and a CEO, you know, that's a totally different mindset from actually doing the doing to almost taking that step back and having to delegate and employ people. How did you kind of get around that? Um, It was tough and it took time. I mean, I'd been doing it at scale anyway. I'd been doing it um, to some extent from when I was 15. So I was never a graphic artist. I was never a musician. Obviously, all of my games had graphics and music. So I, w- I would find artists and musicians uh, and I would design the game and, 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 and build the, the software and incorporate their, their art and their music into that. So, so I, I was managing artists and musicians from the age of 16 to be able to do that and then, and then continue to do so for sort of the next 15 years. Um, and then when I moved to Canada, we was headhunted for the, the, the games role. And actually, this is why I left the games industry. It had got to a point where you had to have large teams. You know, they, they were, you know the Nintendo and other, and other consoles then were huge. Games were, were massive pieces of work. They weren't one, you know, kind of kid in a bedroom finding a musician and artist somewhere. They were a team of 60 people. Um, and so I went to Canada and at the age of 24, whatever I was then, ran a team of about 50 or 60 people to work on a project. Really didn't enjoy it at all. And then quit within a, within a matter of months. And that was pretty much the only sort of full-time job I've ever had, really. Apart from when I ended up running my software as a service business after selling it for a little while. Um, and so I'd had some experiences, good and bad, great with these small teams that I'd been running myself, not so much with you know the, big, the bigger teams in games. Um, and then, of course, 
building the, the dating sites initially with friends and managing friends, which you know can be can be a challenge. But, but arguably, it's, it's an easy way into managing as well because you know you can ask anything of them. You, you know, you can be very direct about what it is you want and, and kind of get things done quite quickly. So I guess the, the the challenge was getting to a point where I was hiring people who weren't who weren't simply friends, and then trying to figure out how how to make that work without them you know simply turning them into friends, which is great when the business <laughs> is smaller, but it can be a challenge as a business gets larger, and it can be particularly challenging if you then have to let them go because they're not very good, for instance. Um, so I, I think um, failing failing often was was a big part of understanding how to manage other people and learning the tools. I think the key tool as a manager is, is sort of to modulate, to understand that depending on who you're speaking to within the business and, and where they sit in the sort of hierarchy of the business, you've got to take a different approach. So I'm much sterner, for instance, with you know with people on the C-suite, with people that aren't you know kind of answered to me directly, than I would be if I get a team of people from the warehouse floor to come and talk to me about some aspect of what they're doing, um, because because I, I don't think that they're, they're necessarily equipped to deal with the CEO kind of you know kind of having a go at them about something. I don't think they should have to. That's 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 too challenging for them, you know, kind of at that stage of their careers. So I think understanding how to how to modulate the different levels of the business is key. Understanding how to empower people to give them what they need to be able to go away and do their job without you nagging them to do that. I don't like managing. So for me, finding great people that love doing what they're doing and trying to bring out the best, give them sufficient autonomy to do that and sufficient guidance to understand where where the sort of the limits are to what they can do is the ideal scenario. The extent you know to which it works. To, Depends on you know, who I hire and what the role is, and so on. But yeah, I mean, many, many, many failures have led to you know the relatively small number of successes that's, <laughs> that's got us here. That's incredibly humble. And a little birdie told me the other day that you said in a meeting once that you don't want to know about the things that are going well, but the things that are going badly. And that's a really interesting way of managing people because you know the things that are going well, I'm assuming, will just continue to to happen in the background and don't need sorting out. Is that the methodology behind that? It really is. I, I, don't, I don't want to get involved with people if they're doing a great job. I mean, except to tell them they're doing a great job, which, which I, I think I do regularly. Yes. I hope I do regularly. Something, I love that, to be able to tell someone they've done a fantastic job. But I don't go around looking for that. As, as, as the CEO and the man who ultimately takes responsibility for what happens in this business, a business that's growing as rapidly as Habu is currently inevitably always has some issues that need to be dealt with. There are only so many hours in the day, so many days in the week. It's vital that that's where I spend my time. And in the meantime, I mean, I've now got you know entire teams whose job it is to make sure everybody feels valued and rewarded for what they do. You know, we do town halls every couple of weeks where we we call people out for having done a fantastic job. So we've institutionalized a lot of that positive feedback. Um, the stuff you can't institutionalize is is the responses, the things that are going wrong that are unanticipated. So that's the stuff that, that I want to hear about all the time. What are we doing badly so that we can do that better? Do you ever get frustrated, angry? Do you ever kind of see red and just you can't <laughs> deal with it there and then? Yeah, I mean, really very, very often indeed. And again, because <laughs> when we're moving so quickly, it, inevitably there are, are failures. And, and then roles change for people as well, which is a challenge. And sometimes people struggle to you know keep up with that and they, they'll drop the ball. And because because I still currently remain on a lot more of the detail than you normally would, if you're running a company of about 650 people, which we are now, you'd probably have been around for longer. You know, you, you would be more established, um, more settled, more more. You know, much of the organisation would have been in place for a longer time, and you could rely on that taking care of, you know, of, of, of the of the sort of business as usual. But there is no business as usual for us. It, it, it's constantly changing, growing at such a pace that it's necessary that I have a handle on detail that, that I wouldn't have to otherwise in a more established business. 
And that, and that means recognizing where where failure is happening at a level of granularity that the CEO wouldn't necessarily anymore established company and that means intervening and sometimes and sometimes yeah it means it means being quite cross because it sometimes feels like it, it isn't it isn't as simple as it. it sometimes feels like we were doing things better than, we were, than when there were many fewer of us i know what you mean yeah and it's because when you're when you are a smaller company you do end up with a small number of obsessives and as you get bigger you end up with people who do a great deal a great job but don't expect to obsess about it and want to go home at you know kind of five or six o'clock and and they're just not necessarily don't have that kind of startup mentality. It's crucial. You can't build a business. You can't build a business of hundreds of people with all of them having that. Um, and, and, and so you have to begin to allow for the fact that you're, you're not going to be dealing with people that are as obsessed about the business and about the detail as you are. Um, and and, and I, I do struggle, I think, a little bit with that aspect of it. Having spent my entire life in startups, it's, it's challenging to deal with people who don't, who simply aren't as obsessive about the whole thing. When you're exiting a business, which you've done on multiple occasions before you before you went into or founded Habu, you know it's your baby. You found it from nothing. It's now become something. At what point do you go? Actually, I want to jump ship. I want to sell the business now. Do you have a roadmap, or do you just kind of wake up one day and go? Actually, today's the day I'm going to put it on the market. Historically, the, the latter, which is again part of the problem. <laughs> Um, you know, really? so I, I get bored with something and I get excited by something else and then and then I kind of move on. Smooch was the exception. There I recognized that there was a small window of opportunity and if we moved smith, swiftly, we could develop a product really quickly. So from 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 a standing start to fifth largest in the country in two or three years, and, and then and then and then flipping it um just as the market peaked, just as the market just before it was decimated by apps. That was a conscious decision, but a lot of the other businesses that I've been involved in weren't, and a lot of the other moves from one business to another, or prior to that, from one game to another, the number of games that I left unfinished, uh, you know, is just, I mean, it's horrifying to think, because uh, I'd have a concept and I'd, I'd build that piece, that first piece, which is the most exciting bit, and that takes maybe 10% of the time to create an entire game. And then I don't want to spend the other 90% turning it into a product that I can send to market, because I've done that exciting prototyping piece. And so it's sort of a lifetime spent, you know, maybe 50% prototyping and abandoning because because I just got excited by something else. And only 50% bringing stuff to conclusion feels slightly wasteful. In the case of Smooch, it was, it was better. In the case of Habu, it's been it's completely been planned, obsessively planned. Uh, you know, I'm 53 years old now. I, I, there's probably not another massive startup in my future. And um, this this really needs to be the one. And it seems to be going in the right way. Yeah, well, it, it has been going well, but it, but it, every stage has been planned. Every raise has been planned, you know, up to the sort of quantum that we wanted to raise, the sort of valuation we were looking at raising. Um, change changes to, 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 to boards. I mean, we're thinking about this kind of stuff all the time, constantly. The next round we already have planned. And what we need to do in order to be able to achieve that is, it, you know, th those are the projections that we're working towards. This has been the most structured project of 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 my life but by far <laughs> all the hours that i've wasted and now feel pained about you know the years that i've wasted i'm trying to kind of take that energy and just direct it into this single project aggregate it into 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 Habu. Yeah, but exactly. i mean in terms of you know structure and milestones and such like entrepreneurs that'll be listening to this that want to start a business are in a business for instance you know they want to get to that million pound turnover that million pound milestone is a massive psychological barrier for so many people and i found out the other day that only 1.9 percent of businesses that start up actually get past that million pound turnover which is you know hardly anybody but can you remember the day that you kind of hit your first million 
Can you remember that vividly or did it not matter to you? It didn't matter particularly with this business. And, and the reason is that, that what I want uh, and what Paul, my co-founder, want and expect from this business is so much more than that. Like our targets from the very beginning were that this should be worth tens of billions at billions would be uh, uh, at least. Yes. Um, and so for that reason, a million was not, it wasn't a particularly important milestone for us. Um, I don't feel like we've hit any really important milestones now, which, which might sound a bit crazy. And it would have sounded crazy to me some time ago, but, but we recognize the potential for this business. I mean, it, it's, in, it's in a space that's you know, worth well over 100 billion globally. Uh, much of that is uncontested. We're working with clients that literally nobody else wants because they haven't built the systems to be able to monetize those clients. So they can't afford to work with them. Um, we've got better systems than anybody out there. We build our own software, which most fulfillment companies don't. We own the full stack, which most fulfillment companies really don't. We're layering on additional products, software products, fintech products that build a much broader range of potential revenues. And so many of those revenues are you know, a much higher margin than traditional fulfillment revenues. Um, and the entire world is is obviously there for us, starting with UK, Europe. You know, we're in the Netherlands now. Um, we're in Spain. Um, I mean, the Netherlands was a fabulous test of our systems, which we tried to build simply enough to roll out rapidly. So I guess by your smile, I'm assuming you've heard the, the story of the four interns. I've heard many stories, but go on. Let's hear it from the horse's mouth. Well, so we, we couldn't get to Europe um, because of lockdown. Every time we tried, there'd be another lockdown and we, we'd be forbidden from yes. getting there. We tried to persuade... Um, the, the Dutch government to allow us to go there on the basis that we were going to create hundreds of jobs, hopeless. But we had one intern that was due to come to the UK but couldn't and, and was just, just you know, doing very little in the Netherlands, really waiting for the opportunity to come here, uh, Nazra. So um, we asked Nazra to just take her iPhone and go from warehouse to warehouse and put it on video mode and we would select a warehouse. And we did. And then we had three interns here, European interns, um, who could legally travel anywhere in Europe. So we sent them over to join her. And the four of them purchased the warehouse, hired every member of staff, implemented all the systems, our software systems, uh, got racks built, uh, forklift trucks hired, security in place, made all the first hires and launched our first European uh, uh, fulfillment center, which was a vindication of what we, we had been aiming towards. Which is, we call it headless operations. The idea is we can roll out operations without having to have any kind of engineering staff on site that we didn't really expect to test it quite as robustly the first time around. <laughs> yes. And you call these micro hubs, don't you? That's the term well, for your... So, yeah, we call them hubs. It's micro warehousing and hub is the particular sort of uh, version of, of micro warehousing that we've worked on. Um, I should say that it, it's, it's a vindication of, of, of our systems, but they were also brilliant. You know, four brilliant young young people, or three of them uh, at that point we had just given jobs to, one of them was still an intern, did an extraordinary job. Three of them went on to then put the Spanish uh, um, uh, uh, business together that that fulfillment center is now running. I mean, a year ago, they were just finishing their, you know, their MBAs. That is remarkable. I mean, looking back, I suppose then, for yourself, when you were going through school, you started all these businesses, you're now essentially at the very, very top of what will be, you know, pretty sure, a unicorn. Would you have ever imagined back in the day that Martin from a school in the East End is now running a multi-billion pound <laughs> business the, the crazy thing is as poorly as i ran all of my early businesses i was convinced they were all gonna be multinationals <laughs> i just i just really wasn't willing to you know kind of do the work or or, or or you know keep the focus that would bring that to fruition um so yeah i mean I, my expectations 
uh, without without any reasonable basis for them were very similar then to, to those I have now. The difference now is I'm, I'm you know trying to do everything that it takes to to, to get us there. Mm-hmm. And we come on to we come on to Habu and how that was founded and the story around kind of obviously going over to the Netherlands whilst innovative is not quite as innovative as how you and Paul started it with essentially some warehousing and you know, a website, so to speak. Talk to me about how you came up with that idea. Pretty much. Also, I didn't. It was Paul's idea. And I met Paul on a, on a, on a football pitch, Saturday morning kids football, because you know, <laughs> we are massive nerds and we have boys that are equally nerdy. And we thought they could do with toughening up. And so we took them along to Saturday morning football, which they hated. But, but we, <laughs> we met and, and became great friends. And then so I, I would regale Paul with, with, you know, all of my entrepreneurial stories, at least some of which were true. Uh, and he got very excited um, by them, and decided he wanted to do something. So you know, I was sort of help, I, would men- I was mentoring him through through thinking about what he might do and how he might do it. And after two or three iterations, we landed on this kind of fulfillment idea, and he had some novel ideas for for micro warehousing. But, but I mean, usually I've, I've mentored people before. Usually, mentoring begins to fail the moment you ask them to do something because most people, you know, they love the idea of these things, but not necessarily the reality. So for Paul, I said, well, your problem is you need software. You're not, you're not a software engineer. He's highly technically he actually was an engineer, though not a software engineer. But for dec- you know, for decades, he'd been working for P&G in a sort of uh, a change management capacity. His remit was to save them half a billion pounds a year on logistics, but nothing to do with you know programming. Um, so I said, you, you know, you, you'll need to learn programming if you want to do this. So you know, a week later, he came back with a prototype of the software he built. Wow, who did he and how did he do that then? Oh, I mean, I told him the tools that he would need, the languages that he should consider using and this kind of thing. But again, never really expect him to do it. <laughs> no. um, and he did it. And it just he came back and there it is. Uh, and then, then I said, well, now you need to think about getting some space. It's a fulfillment company. So if you're going to test this out, you need a lab, which is, you know, kind of space somewhere. So he got himself a 500 square foot and a safe store in Bath and, and an employee. Because, of course, he was busy doing the P&G thing. So uh, no, no clients at all. And I think it was the commercial piece... That was the line he wasn't quite so willing to cross in the same way that I hadn't been as an engineer. Um, so he kept building out the, the product. He, he bought his own products to sell them online so that he was the customer of his own product as he was building this. And got to a point, to see if it works. Absolutely. And got to a point where it worked and it was actually really interesting. But, but he wasn't going to commercialize it. Uh, and I was very bored running the software as a service business that I'd sold and was now running for somebody else. <laughs> and so I said, well, look, I'll, I'll invest and I'll commercialize it. Do you mind asking how much you, you invested as a, a sort of seed fund? Yeah, it was huge, like 50,000 50, pounds. Oh, so it really was quite small then in that case. Yeah, no, absolutely. Paul had put about 20,000 pounds of his own cash in at that stage. So between us, we, we, we spent about 70,000, which got us to about 30,000 pounds a month turnover by the time I'd spent a, a year commercializing the project and that's the point at which we we raised some cash um but I, but I took it to market and 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 it was extraordinary we would be targeting a section of the market that, that no other fulfillment company would work with people that were you know, very small companies or companies with highly complex offerings so for instance you know re-commerce the sale of vintage and secondhand which is a very big part of our business today fulfillment companies will not touch it because it's so complex every SKU is unique we have a fabulous company vintage cash cow um, who are, I think they're, they're one of the biggest um, sellers on eBay in the country. It's a really great business. And they only sell vintage stuff, like terrifying Victorian dolls and, you know, old-fashioned cameras and that kind of stuff. Um, and so every SKU they send us is unique. It, it, it's at scale. And we're really rapidly kind of turned around. Um, and then it was a real challenge. Operationally, you know, they found it a real challenge, gave it to us. And, and, and we, you know, can integrate it with our systems and, and improve our systems to deal with that kind of complexity at scale. 
Um, and it allowed us to work with a much broader range of clients. So we signed up 60 clients in the first sort of six months. Um, and and, and the, the conversations were not, uh, here's, a, here's an alternative quote, you know, can you beat it? They were, thank you for existing. Where do I send the boxes? Um, and that was, that was really exciting. And that's 60 entrepreneurs as well. So suddenly, you know, I'm, I'm having these conversations with excited e-commerce entrepreneurs. And that was really thrilling. It was, I, I'd never sold before in my life. I mean, I, you know, you, you sell everything you're doing as an entrepreneur, but, but not, not, not in that structured way, not selling a product and getting contracts signed. And so it was thrilling. And we, we realized that it had legs um, and decided that we would, we would raise some proper funding for really the first time in my life. We, we were never going to be able to afford to roll this out without funding. In terms of what Habu specifically does, explain exactly what Habu does before you went for that funding and where it is now then. It's moved on a bit. The, fund, the, the core piece is still the same, which is e-commerce fulfillment, which essentially means to store products on behalf of e-commerce companies. And then when transactions come in via our connections to their marketplaces, you know, eBay, Amazon, Etsy, and about we do about 40 plus marketplaces now. Um, when transactions come in via those marketplaces, we pick back and post them. So we take that whole operational piece off of the hands of the e-commerce entrepreneur, which typically results in growth for that entrepreneur straight away because they they they, they started out as e-commerce entrepreneurs. And the next thing you know, if they're doing well, they're packing boxes. Yes, they and, are. and now they're not packing yeah. boxes. They're finding new products and new marketplaces and, and improving their marketing because, you know, we're packing their boxes and handling that transactional piece and, and the returns and all those sorts of associated you know problems which in turn grows grows their business i suppose and and to the point of growing a business and indeed growing revenues you went for in 2019 2.1 million quid in 2020 5.2 million then 14 million you've just done a 60 million where do these numbers come from how do you pinpoint the specific or the specificity around a 2.1 million raise for instance i mean to some extent it, we we think about need but we um, in the early days, especially, we underestimated needs. So um, the, the first, actually, the first seed seed raise was was in total about about four million. So we, we did a million from episode one, uh, who were fabulously supportive. That was supposed to last us a year. It lasted us three months. We we, we discovered a tremendous <laughs> capacity for spending other people's money um, over the last few years. But the top line growth was amazing, and that was the key. So when we returned to episode one, slightly shamefaced, asking them for another million pounds three months later. They could see what we had done and they gave it to us, which was a first for episode one. I think certainly then, and I think remains so. When three months later, we went back to them and said, now we need another million. Um, they weren't quite as keen. So um, seed funds are not, are not, they're not huge. Uh, they're limited. Usually they're British business bank invested. Uh, and that typically means that they can invest no more than 10% of their fund in any one, um, one, one business. And they're always going to want to keep some powder dry for the next round because if if your C doesn't follow through to the Series A, that's a black mark against you. The Series A you know, investors want to know why. So at that point, they didn't really feel they could invest any any further. Luckily, um, a guy called Matt Pennycard, who runs a fund called Ada Ventures, along with Czech Warner, um, he introduced me to episode one originally. A friend of a friend, now now a friend of mine, but at the time a friend of a friend. Um, he didn't have a fund. He's a VC, but they were trying to land a fund. Just after um, we we discovered that we can't we can't raise again from episode one, Matt lands his fund. Loves absolutely loves how we was followed the journey throughout. Invested in a small way as an angel in that first round, and so he offers to invest, um, and, and and wants to put a million pounds in, which is which is going to save us at that point. I mean, we've always run toward yes. the cliff edge without. And this is the other key, I think, to, to to the success that we've had so far. 
we are not at all risk averse. Our position is is that we will raise what we need to when we need to. And we've always managed that. Often cutting a bit fine, but we've always managed that. Well, I was going to say, how far in advance do you actually do that? Is it weeks? Is it days? Well, it now, it's, now it's months, but, but then it was weeks. Yeah. Um, I mean, wow. you can imagine if, if, if you if you spend a million pounds in three months, there's not a great deal of time to think about how you bring in the next million. <laughs> it's a good burn rate, that. Yeah, that it's not good. bad. Um, but, but again, <laughs> justified by the top line. Our position was what, what we aren't going to do is just to hold back on any opportunity that we can see at that moment. We are not going to say to ourselves, well, we can't afford that opportunity. We're going to we're going to grab that opportunity. We're going to go with it, and 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 in the background, I'm going to be off trying to get us some more cash to make that possible. And so that's what's driven this this to some extent this 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 you know huge top line growth um, and the geographical growth. It's been it's been our, our reluctance to, to to give in to the realities of whatever resources we happen to have at that moment. Instead, taking the position that we will simply get what we need. And so we raised the million from from Matt, or he agreed the million. It was going to take a few days of due diligence. Days. <laughs> we realized it really wasn't going to be enough to get us through to the Series A. And I didn't want to be... And also, of course, the company's getting bigger. So a million is not going to necessarily last us three months anymore. And I don't want to be raising in another six weeks. So um, I'd spoken to Maersk weeks earlier. Just like uh, they'd phoned us up just to kind of, you know, see if we were... What we were and what we were doing and whether we'd be interested in investment. As far as I was concerned, we were probably too big to move swiftly enough to invest in this round. But my theory was that the best way to get their interest was to tell them that a round was closing and that they could not invest in it. Right. Um, okay. So I phoned them up on, on the Friday after I spoke to Matt, telling them about Matt investing in this extension of the seed round. Um, and, I, and I said to them, look, I'm telling you because I don't want you to hear it from somebody else because we do want to talk to you at the Series A. So, so that, that's why I'm phoning you up to tell you you cannot invest. And it's... it's, it's you know, um, you'll get this from VCs. They admit to, to FOMO being a kind of an obsession within the industry, fear of missing out. It's like poker. You know, you just, you just got to you've got to persuade people. You've you've you know that your your interests lie elsewhere, and then that sort of dictates how how the betting on the table goes. Or in the case of of, of VCs, it, it dictates their degree of interest. If you, if you go to a VC really needing money, they're very unlikely to give it to you. If they think that not merely do you not need it, but other people are giving you cash, it can, it can literally drive them into a frenzy. So um, they, they they insisted they could invest and would invest on the Friday and told us to come to Copenhagen on the Monday, um, which we we did. Paul Paul booked the worst hotel in Copenhagen, um, rightly so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we, we attended the three hour IC. I reiterated constantly throughout it that they could not invest. Uh, they insisted, and eventually I I gave way and allowed them to give us um, half a million pounds. Um, but, but on extraordinary terms, I mean, there was no time for them to do due diligence or to adjust the contract. And so they would have to invest on that basis. I mean, it's, it's sort of, it sounds slightly mocking when I say this, but um, all VCs are driven by fear of missing out. What, what, what Maersk did was, 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 again, show that same sort of, same willingness to risk that we were demonstrating throughout. They threw all caution to the wind. They said, fine, we won't do the, that, that extended due diligence piece. We'll accept that we have to take the existing contract and we'll make it happen within four days. For any VC to turn that around is extraordinary. For, for a CVC, for a company like Merce to do so, is breathtaking. So whilst it's a sort of a funny story that we were able to persuade this huge beast to you know, kind of turn its huge ship around for us. Literally, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, but, but it's actually, it reflects incredibly well on them. You know th their willingness to take that punt on what seemed to them exciting uh, and on something they really didn't want to miss out on, and obviously they've been rewarded by a company that has since demonstrated considerable growth. But it, but it ended so I, we went to um, uh, we went to, to to sit in a cafe for the afternoon, and 
Paul, my, Paul, my co-founder, is convinced that, it, that, that he, he has the ability to, to see the future. Oh, so please we, do tell. We, we, we sit in this cafe, and the, the lead VC at Maersk phones up, and he says, "We are, we are, where are you?" I, I explained to him, we're just, "We're just down the road in the cafe." He says, "We're going, we're going to do this on the crazy terms that you've, you know, you've outlined. We're going to do it, but we need to invest more." And of course, that's my favorite word because whilst I'm pretending not to want any more money, I want as much as I can possibly get yeah. out of the whole thing. So I tell him, of course, I tell him that we don't want more, um, but that he's welcome to come down and see us. Um, and so he jumps on his bike to, 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 to you know, pursue us across Copenhagen to, to tell us that he has to, to invest more. Paul then writes a number on his phone, doesn't show it to me, puts it on the table and says, that's how much they're going to they're gonna offer us. Oliver comes through the door. We have a conversation. He says, I'm going to do it but we need to make it 750, at which point Paul's face just collapses. And of course, we need that money really badly, so he should be thrilled, but, but obviously he's got the number wrong. And he's more upset that he's got the number wrong on his phone than he is thrilled that we've got this additional investment. So Oliver then leaves, Paul turns it over and shows, uh, shows 800 on his phone. And he says, I, I, he says, I first thought 750, and then for some reason second-guessed myself and thought 800. And then Oliver <laughs> pokes his head back in the door and says, can we make it 800? You're joking. That's ridiculous. At which point Paul is suddenly happy. Not because we have 800,000 pounds in addition to the million that Ada are giving us. Just because he got because it right. right. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, is that how you do all of your funds moving forward? Pretty much. You just go to Paul and go, right, <laughs> what are we going to do this time? Yeah, I just <laughs> ask Paul, what, what are we actually going to raise? Look, you know, have a look into the future, and that's what I'll ask for. And then we can just, there's no negotiations necessary. That's perfect. And I mean, the, the fact is that you're growing at such rapid uh, pace, and you've obviously got a huge amount of IP because you own all the tech, you own all of the kind of, I suppose, the digital aspect as well, which must give you a massive multiple when and if you ever got to that flotation or exit. I, well, from, from your lips to God's ears, I, I hope that is the way that it rolls out. One of the challenges with fulfillment is it is a highly operational business. Uh, and we're, we're going to have the best margins in fulfillment, but they will still be fulfillment-like margins, or at least that fulfillment piece will be. We think of ourselves as a software company. We've got, we have 80 developers downstairs. It'll be 200 by the end of the year. We build all our own software. We, we build a dashboard, and we build into it additional high-margin products. And we think, we think that's what makes it particularly exciting and what will ultimately deliver that multiple. So I'm going to give you an example. Fintech products. So we rolled out a protection product. It's self-insured. It's our product. So far, it's, it's, you know, early days, 11% take up. Of that 11%, it's 14% of the revenues of those clients. And it has an 80% margin. So you'll never see in fulfillment. Is that a net margin or a gross? Yes, that's a, a net margin. So it's a, a net margin. Wow. Uh, software products are, of course, typically like that. Fin, fintech products are typically like that. So we're layering on software products, fintech products, and, and additional products, and third third party products on what we call the hub store, which is a, a sort of an app store that sits in our dashboard um, to, to build up that, that, that really kind of high margin, sticky, engaging fintech software based um, products. And so we think that that's, I mean, we're different. Everything about us is different, but that's, I think from, from, from an investor, from, from a, an exit point of view, that's what I think should be really exciting for people that either, the buy us or if we float buy shares in us. Because obviously the likes of Amazon would be an ideal, surely, synergy to just buy you so that they've got... If I, if I had Paul on this call right now, his answer would be, we're buying Amazon, not the other way around. <laughs> yeah, he also thinks we're buying Maersk for the freight piece. So that's, his, his aspirations are even more excessive than mine. Is that just because he wants a big boat though, Martin? Well, they're, they're, that is definitely a big part of it. <laughs> um, it, it, 
I, I think it's unlikely if we get to where we want to get to, there won't be too many companies out there big enough to buy us. And I think a float is probably more likely exit. A hundred percent. But do you ever kind of get imposter syndrome? Because you've kind of gone from essentially doing bits and bobs yourself and being quite hands-on to now being thrust into essentially what could be a PLC on the stock market. And you've really no experience. You you know, do you ever suffer with that? I mean, not, not really, not, not in that sense. I don't find anything more challenging about the things I'm doing now than I've found historically. I mean, the early stages of startups are extraordinarily difficult, and you know, done that repeatedly. The complexity of you know of writing computer games in assembly language. I mean, nowadays they're all written in high-level languages. Then the whole thing was assembly language. Um, extraordinarily complex. So I've, I've been dealing with you know those you know immense complexities from the age of you know 13 or 14 when I was writing my first computer games in assembly language. Um, and then, and then, you know, dealing with with people in various businesses for the last twenty years, involved in other businesses as well, I, investor sitting on the board, you know, kind of seeing how businesses are run, what, what people do. The difference here has been, I guess, the, the challenge here, where I where I really haven't been able to draw on experience, my own experience, is, is in is in to some extent turning it into a, into a, a more systematic, I suppose, a more corporate beast. You know, you, you you can't you can't run a business this size and particularly as it gets larger on the cult of personality. It's got to be about systems and processes, but that's that's really easily solved as well. You just find brilliant people, and you know people who know more about these kinds of things. You know who could do a much better job at these sorts of things than I ever could, and you bring them into the business, um, and and that solves that problem. So the key, I, I mean, this is a cliche. And I can't remember who said it first, but it's a cliche. You'll certainly have heard. It is to employ people that are just much better than you are. And yes, that's, that's yeah, what indeed. I seek to do. And obviously, in my case, the bar is low, so it's, it's not a it's not a huge challenge to find people that are much better than I am. But it's um, <laughs> but that's that's what I try to do, and so far it seems to be working. And you say that you can't necessarily build the business that you've currently got on a personality per se, i.e., you uh, and Paul, but you can build it on a brand. And you guys have been investing pretty heavily on sponsorship of football, sponsorship of rugby. You know, so many different things out there that you guys are throwing cash at just to just to get your brand in front of people. Is that part of the key growth plan to have that brand awareness? It is. Um, it's, it's a sort of a two-phase process. So we enter a new territory. There's no point in thinking about brands at that stage because we need to generate sales quickly. So then it's about performance marketing. And then and performance marketing builds a brand, of course. Performance marketing plus a great service equals brand, but it takes time. And so if you want to accelerate that and you're at a point where you can afford to do so and, and you are sufficiently established in a territory as we are in the UK, then you start thinking about those specific brand activities like the kinds of sports investments. So, so in the Netherlands and Spain, we're looking at performance marketing. Eventually, we'll bring this kind of stuff online in those territories as well. But, but it's low-hanging fruit. It, it's quick sales straight away, and that's not about brand. It, it, it's, it's about you know, it's about being there when someone when someone wants you. When they type fulfillment into Google. What motivates you, Martin, apart from that kind of obviously the next four-year growth trajectory? What else motivates you? Historically, it has been the next exciting thing, whatever excited me. You know, I'm, I'm intellectually interested in all sorts of things. I've got fertile minds and I've been drawn to, the, you know, whatever's exciting me at that moment. Ideally, creative things, which is why the product has always been a big part of that. What excites me and what drives me right now is, is turning this into a hundred billion pound business. It, it can be that. I think it's an extraordinarily exciting thing to have done, to have left something like that in place. And then, absolutely, but, but it also then, I mean, I, I, have, I have a huge interest in, 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 in politics, uh, in, in certain charitable areas, in certain aspects of society that I've never really been able to devote very much time to. And I'd like to have that time and the resources to do things in, in, in those spaces. So, so 
ultimately, six, seven years from now, also being free to, to, to get involved in those areas and having the resources to do so is very exciting to me. But primarily, it's, it's, it's right now, it's about a build, building that extraordinary beast of a size that only really a handful of people in any given decade manage to, you know, manage to accomplish. So there's that philanthropic thing down the line and there's that kind of cultural aspect right now, which, which obviously attracts and retains the... I suppose, your staff to a certain extent. It does. We work really hard on that cultural piece. We, we want to create great jobs and we worked really hard. I mean, we didn't talk very much about this. Obviously we don't have a huge amount of time, but the, 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 the hub model, um, which is which is what we use for our warehouses, is unique and it creates great jobs in warehouses. Warehouse jobs are usually awful, of course. I mean, you've seen all the bad reportage that, that Amazon have had over the last couple of years about their warehouses. And to be fair to Amazon, um, I don't think their warehouses are any worse than anybody else's. I think they could even be a good deal better. It is that it, it's that kind of job. You know, these are these fulfillment has been turned into a series of tedious, repetitive tasks that eventually people burn out from, and then like a light bulb, they're sort of thrown out and another one's plugged in. We didn't want to do that. So um, the hub model creates complex jobs rather than simple, repetitive jobs. It requires training as a consequence. And so we invest in, in people, we invest in their training to allow them to do that. It connects them with the client. So, so the people that do the transactions, the picking the pack and the posting, they do the first line of support as well for clients, which means that they engage directly with clients. That never happens in fulfillment. The people who pick do not also talk to clients. And that, that creates this feedback loop. So, so those people doing those warehouse jobs in dealing with a the client, they know exactly why they do what they do. Clients, clients are grateful. They thank them when they do a fantastic job. The company I mentioned earlier, Vintage Cash Cow, they have about eight people on their team. And they think of them as their team. Again, it, it's, it's unique. They, it feels as if it's an extension of their own team. They came down to, so they're in Leeds, they came down to Bristol a couple of months ago to take them all out to dinner. You know, I, I, my guess is that the people don't travel halfway across the country to take pickers from Amazon out to dinner. To, I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but it's <laughs> a pretty good guess. I don't, I don't think I'm too far out on a limb um, with that one. <laughs> so creating amazing jobs and then helping those people move throughout the business if there are other things they want to do. Quite often people end up in a warehouse, not because that's the one thing they want to do, but because they don't quite know what they want to do. And some people get into our warehouse and they, they love being hub managers. They love the job. And other people get there because they didn't know what, what they wanted to do and end up taking a warehouse role. And they wanted to be marketing or, or sales or, or, or in product. Um, we've got people that, that started as hub managers and have moved into all of those areas of the business. We've got people who started as hub managers and um, you know moved into running their own warehouses. So we work really hard to give people career paths irrespective of how they enter our business. And again, I think that's something that often doesn't happen in these highly operational businesses. Well, that's, I mean, that genuinely sounds inspiring. And I suppose it costs a lot of money and that's why you have to go through multiple funds. But looking at becoming a, a soon-to-be unicorn, which is what you were tipped in Business Live, I think it was the other week, you know, at what point do you think you'll have that billion dollar or billion pound valuation, Martin? So um, the, the, for us, the, the intention is to raise again in September this year. So we're, we're, broadly, we're broadly raising enough for another year. I mean, the truth is, you know, we raise as much as we can get away with raising without without over dilution. <laughs> because the size of the round dictates what we can do in the next 12 months. There's no limits to what we could do. I mean, if you gave us a billion pounds tomorrow, we could spend that. I mean, the rest of the world is there for us to, you know, kind of reach out to or, 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 or you know, quadrupling the size of the development team so we can roll out more of those software products. But it's really whatever we can pull off at that moment. And we've done pretty well. So, you know, the, the seed was 4 million. Typically, a seed in this country is one or two. The Series A was 14. The Series A here is three to five. Series B is usually around 25. We did 60 plus another 20 of debt from Silicon Valley Bank. 
We're looking to do probably something like 250. Those Silicon Valley, I've got shares in them. They are amazing Silicon Valley bank because they invest in all the sort of tech startups, don't they? They're really good. I mean, they make it, they make it pretty easy to get some additional non-dilutive funding, which is what we were looking for there. Um, and in the next round, we'll probably do around 250 of equity funding. And at that point, we would expect a post billion pound valuation. I, I think somewhere like 1.5 might be appropriate at that stage. Cool in a phrase, I'm not sure if you've ever seen Wall Street Money Never Sleeps with Gordon Gecko, where he goes, greed is good. Do you think greed is good, Martin? I don't think greed is, greed is good at all, no. And I, I don't feel like a greedy person myself. I mean, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to buy super yachts. You know, I, I've no interest in living in a mansion. Um, I, I don't, I, I've never been someone to try to accumulate stuff, money or things, which is, you know, part of how I've managed to accumulate so little of both uh, over the decades. <laughs> But, but I do think that, that what, what, what these things give you is the ability to, to affect change. And that, that's something I, I would like to, um, to do. Uh, and, so, and so I think having the resources to be able to do that are really exciting. But, but you know, we, just before Christmas, we, we, we gave an almost 10% raise to, 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 to our managers, to, you know, the largest group in our business who are, who are historically, certainly in this industry, sort of the worst paid, because we could see what was coming. We give shares to everybody in the business. You know, everyone from hub managers, hub supervisors, all the way up have shares in the business. I think and how do you work out that share? How do you work out that share break? What's the what's the sort of... I mean, it's a challenge and it's, it's a lot of kind of negotiations. And obviously it's less every time because there's less risk involved. Of course, of course. Um, but, but I mean, there are people that were um, hub managers with us in the first year or so that, that you know, will be able to buy themselves a house when we, when we sell this business. So, and again, as far as I know, we are unique um, as a VC-backed business in using EMI schemes to deliver shares to everybody in the business, to, you know, 650 people, not to just, you know, the 12 key managers in the business. So um, I don't think greed is good. I, I think, I think it, it behoves us to, to, to attempt to, to distribute, you know, the value we create um, in, in as many ways as we can by helping people in their careers, by delivering them, you know, the shares and, and, and increasing their wages wherever possible and helping them move up throughout the business, paying for their education, which we do with a number of, of people here, and also helping out in society. So, so increasingly, we're doing more with local charities, food banks, uh, homeless charities, that, those sorts of things. And I mean, just trying, just trying to accept that, that the business wouldn't be here were it not right now for the, for the Bristol uh, you know, communities that, that have invested their, their time, energies into this business. Everyone in this business really feels like they're very much part of it. I and mean, if you talk to... Sometimes come down and see us and, and, and meet people in the warehouse and you'll realise they're fundamental to, to what we do here. Um, and eventually we'll do the same in Eindhoven and elsewhere. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I was just saying how I'd absolutely love to pop down, but I think, you know, you guys are on one hell of a trajectory and I know there's a lot of people I've spoken to over the last couple of weeks where I go, I've got Martin on from Habu and they go, Habu, they keep popping up everywhere. So you're clearly doing something right. We've but got great marketing people. That's, You've got great people, full stop, I think, Martin. But in terms of actually, yes, yeah. in terms of one takeaway then for the entrepreneurs, the aspiring individuals that are listening to this, wanting to one day be a Martin or be a Habu, for instance, what would you say to them? Um, I'm terrible with one line at this moment. So just uh, kind of a, a few lines. Give me a paragraph things. then. Yeah, the first thing <laughs> is raise money. I mean, I've bootstrapped businesses before. It's just not worth it. Yes, you'll own more of the business. It'll take you 10 times as long. You'll get half as far. I mean, there are exceptions to that. But on the whole, that, that's the case. Raise money, and then when you have, don't be afraid to spend that money. We, we, we hire lots of people who are, and we have to train them, you know, to kind of to, to buy whatever resources they need to get them there as quickly as, the, as, as they can possibly get there. Um, you know, and, and don't, be, don't be daunted by what lies ahead. Your life, will, your life will be spent solving problem after problem. VC say, what are your five biggest problems? 
I've had a hundred problems every single day. I mean, I, I don't ask myself which are the biggest ones. I just try and, you know, kind of work my way through them all. So a, li- a life of exciting problems um, awaits and those problems are much easier solved if you're properly funded. So yeah, um, get, <laughs> get, get, get lots of funding would be my main tip. I love it. Look, enjoy your, your brief break in Brighton if the weather sustains itself, but uh, have a good weekend and thank you ever so much, Martin, for coming on. Lovely chatting. All the best. Thanks for listening. Join me next week, Wednesday at 8am on all podcast platforms where we'll be speaking to another leading entrepreneur. Show your support by subscribing as without you, this podcast wouldn't happen. Produced by Pinpoint Media and sponsored by Capsule Cover, this was a Success is in the Mind podcast. Take care.